0: Romans chapter 3, as we continue on, if you have your Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and turn there. We're going to start at verse 21, and we'll see how far we get in this last section of Romans chapter 3, because we divided it up into three sections, but within those three sections, we've taken time to go through some things in depth. And we've broken up each section into subsections. So today we're going to start at verse 21. We'll see how far we get. Romans 3, 21, I titled the message, How to be right with God. We've talked about what it looks like not to be right with God. Now we're going to look at how to be right with God. And if we get this one wrong, man, we get the whole thing wrong. And we want to be very careful to make sure that we're getting the whole picture because we spent time just talking about justification and what that means and the pardon that we're acquitted. But not only that, it's positive righteousness. We're promoted and it's eternal. And we're going to come to those words again, that Greek word justification and righteousness. They're used, they're the same word, the same from the same root word, but he uses them in different places in different ways. So the Apostle Paul here has really gone full circle in his letter to the Romans. He really has. He began his introduction with essentially the same words that we're going to read here. In fact, let's read them now. It says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation of His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so he begins this introduction with essentially the same words that he did before and it was the with the intent to come to the end of ourselves and to the end of our false securities anything that we've built up in our lives that we think makes us righteous the righteous judgment of God was imminent. There was a way out. And this is what he wants to point out. There's a contrast here. Remember with me back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, for the born-again believer, for the Christian, I believe that he gave those words, as we talked about when we were in that chapter, we talked about that it was going to go dark for a while. And we remember as we were going through those chapters and verses that it did go dark. And I just was thinking about how that might look. You know, we've probably seen many movies or television shows about the military, about it going dark, and they have their night goggles or their night vision. Before it went dark here, Paul wanted to give us, in a sense, spiritual night vision so that we wouldn't lose sight of anything in the dark so we could still see that was for the born-again christian because the intent for everyone else was to get them to realize that they are in the dark that the bible says they stumble about they stumble around not even realizing it and we as christians are to help we're to bring it to light this is what paul was doing this is his intent now if you're just joining us You might be wondering what has been taking place in these last few chapters. And let me recap here real quick. When it goes dark in chapter 1, after his introduction, Paul in 18 through 32 shows us what it looks like to be unrighteous. Very clear. It was sin on display, on open display, unhindered lives, giving us full view of human depravity and then in chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 paul gives us the moralist the person that thinks i'm good i'm not that bad the person trying to do things to look good and then from there paul points out the religious person who is trying to earn their way through activities Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, he brings everybody into the courtroom. The entire world is brought into view. And he says, there's none righteous. And for the person that says, well, I am, he says, no, not even you. No, not one. Nobody is righteous. And he brings everybody down. And that's where you're left. We have looked at all these things in depth, which was Paul's intent And it is to break the will of every proud heart standing on every false security, any false security, to get every human being willfully submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to the Lordship, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, as he commands you to be obedient. And it was to restore hearts back to God, that acquittal, that pardoning and that promotion, as we spoke about last week. Now, during Jesus' ministry, while he walked on earth, Jesus was one day talking to the multitudes about John the Baptist. You may recall this story. He began comparing the generation with children who were playing games. In Matthew chapter 11, 16 and 19, it tells us, "'But to what shall I liken this generation?' Jesus asks." It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John the Baptist came one way, Jesus came another way. The Apostle Paul here is coming in. And although they all had a different approach, they all had the same message up front, and that was repent. Repent. He didn't come to them and say, are you having problems in your marriage? He didn't come to say, is your kid off and they're being wild and crazy? He didn't say any of those things. Do you have an alcohol drug problem? It wasn't any of that. It was repent, because everybody's a sinner. Not just the people that you think look like sinners. Everybody is a sinner. Even the people that look fantastic. And exactly, this is exactly what Paul was doing. Now the prophet Ezekiel tells us of this amazing amazing vision that he has at the start of his ministry. Do you recall that? I mean, part of it had to do with God taking a scroll and feeding it to ezekiel and he ate it it tells us that the words that he ate were filled with lamentations and mournings and woe because judgment was coming yet in his mouth in ezekiel's mouth god's word it tells us the bible tells us that it was like honey and sweetness to him that's how god's word is to the believer honey and sweetness so how do you get from god's word becoming punishment to hope well we're going to learn about that you have to know the bad before you can know what the good you have to have that understanding and this is the way of paul here this is what he's doing painting a dark picture in an effort to get everyone to see their plight and to repent. Why? Because you will never see the light if this is not the first step. You'll never see it. In other words, you may never understand grace if you never understand sin. You won't understand grace if you don't understand sin. And let me tell you, the person who has been forgiven much, loves much, Does that mean that if I was in such deep, dark sin that I love Jesus more when he saves me? No. It's the person who understands, and it could be the best person in the world. And when they understand that they're a sinner, man, they love much. They're harder to win than anybody else. They love much. You may never understand grace if you don't understand sin. Sin, after all, is rebellion against God. Sin is not just something that means that you and I have failed. It doesn't just mean that. It doesn't mean that we've let ourselves down and our standards down. Sin is not just something that makes us miserable and unhappy. The essence of sin is rebellion against God, leading to estrangement from God. And if we do not conceive of sin always in reference to God and our relationship to Him, we have an inadequate Idea and conception of sin as our sin is separation from Him and if sin is separation from Him salvation is then what? It's reconciliation to Him and praise God for that. Universal sin that is what's holding everyone captive and only God's word will set free and Paul here is saying, I'm not a gospel. In other words, he was saying that I'm proud to share it the way that he was teaching. It's the power of God to set captives free. Like the Athenians taken captive by Sicily in the Peloponnesian War. It was said that the captives were set free to their beloved country by reciting the strains of their favorite poet Euripides in the hearing of the Sicilian masters. They just recited poetry to them. And because of the beautiful poetry, they had compassion on them and they let them go. This is how they pro- procured their freedom and restoration and appealed to the heart. And what better poetry in man- to mankind today than the word of God to set captives free? What a beautiful picture. So much we can learn from history. And so the Apostle Paul, after painting a most bleak picture of mankind, he leads right back to the start. And guess what he does? He does it intentionally. He knows what he's doing. It was well thought out and it was well pre-planned. He doesn't do it at random and say the next thing that comes to his mind. You know, there are some teachers who will get up and they will, and I've heard them tell me uh, very plainly, you know, I read a scripture and then I just say whatever's on my mind. As if it was the Holy Spirit directing them all the time and nothing else. Let me tell you something when you're in study, when you're prepping a message, the Holy Spirit is present with you at that time and he's telling you what to say at that time. So we have to be careful. The Apostle Paul gave us a great example. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't doing it at random. And he has an introduction. And then he gets to his point. So when we And he's deliberate. So when we teach in that fashion, we're not following what the Apostle Paul did. We just get up here, we read something, we say whatever's on our mind, and we get into our hobby horses. And then we begin to go into politics, we begin to go into all kinds of things. And we don't stick here as I'm getting off track now. So he's deliberate, and he's building and building upon each thing like a stepping stone. And we're only beginning to see what he's coming to in the next chapters. It's as if he's giving us a a content page of a great book. Chapter 1 is this. Chapter 2 is this. Chapter 3 is this. And these chapters are preparing us for all the things that are coming, because each subject that he deals with here... We dive into deeper. You think we've dove deep now? We get to dive even deeper into them. So every point here seems to jump to other chapters in this great letter. That's why there are times where we go ahead and re-reference some things. And now with everybody brought to judgment, the last verses tell us that we read together that every mouth was shut because nobody had an argument anymore. The verdict was in everybody was guilty, and in that courtroom setting there was no there was no defense because there is no defense. you are guilty and he hands down a verdict. Now Paul, the apostle Paul, naturally leads everyone to the only question oh, that you could have on your mind. And if we're all condemned by the fall of Adam and there's nothing I can do to restore my relationship with God, then how can anyone be saved? I don't understand. Can anyone anyone be right with God? How then do I become right with God? What is the way? Because I thought I was doing it, and now you're telling me it was all wrong. So how do you have the answer and I don't? Job asked that question, that very same question. Turn with me for a moment. Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 at verse 2 through 20, it says, Job speaking here, But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the ways of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness." If it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. How can I be right with a God like this? All-powerful, almighty. Is there any way? He's too big for me. Look what he created, and why would he ever pay attention to me, if I'm so dark and sinful? How could I ever be right with God? If he demands perfection, how can I ever obtain it? These are the questions that Paul is leading the reader to. It's a great place to be. This is the question in Micah chapter six, verses six through seven. You don't have to turn there. You can turn back to Romans chapter 3. But in Micah 6, 6 and 7, the prophet cries out, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul?" What he's saying is, what can I do? Tell me what you want me to do. I'm at the end of myself. Isn't that like some people today, when they begin to hear the gospel, and they begin to say in their minds, man, I thought everything was good. Now I'm being told that I'm a sinner, that my whole life is a sham? I don't understand. I was just going along with the ways of the world, how everybody's living, I'm watching the same shows, the same movies. I mean, how could you say that all of this is no good? But now I've been shown the blackness of my heart, my sinful nature. Is there any way to be right with God? And the Apostle Paul's answer here is yes. Yes, there is. And it comes in the following words. It comes after the following words. But now. But now in verse 21 the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets the apostle Paul has gone full circle to get right back to this point and it's intentional to let the reader and the listener know there is a way to be reconciled with God but it's apart from anything you and I can do It is only in the way that God provides and makes. He makes the way, not me. And here he begins to tell us how. He says, but now. You see, these two words are some of the most celebrated words in the entire Bible. It is not the words themselves that provide the Christian assurance assurance and comfort, though. It is what they come out of and what they lead into. The entire scene begins to change. The background changes from darkness into light. It's as if the stage is lighting up, and it comes in, and here comes in, the knight in shining armor on a white horse. And this is what he's trying to do. He's being dramatic. Why? Because it's so exciting. It's one of the most exciting things in the entire Bible. Why? Because this word here, but... It is not the therefore word. It's not therefore. It's not just simply a conjunction. It's not a conjunction of what he's been saying. It's used here in the advertive particle. It is a contrast from what he was saying. To put it in other terms, Paul is saying, we have been in the dark, and now we come into the light. But now... That's how he's using the word. It's not a therefore. It's not simply a conjunction. It's a contrast. That's what he's pointing out. If you look up that Greek word, that's what it's going to tell you it's doing. So what is this righteousness then? Worthy of these but now words contrasting from dark into light. It is the light of righteousness that only comes from above. In Luke chapter 1, 78 through Seventy-nine. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied of Jesus that he would be the sunrise from on high who shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Luke two thirty thirty-two. 32 as the godly Simeon held the infant Jesus in his arms, he declared, My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast passed. That thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In John 1, 9, John describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then in John 8, verse 12, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, brought in himself the light of salvation into the world. And so this is the contrast from darkness of man to the light of Christ. There is a way through Jesus, and he imparts his righteousness to you. Now, righteousness, this righteousness, what does it mean? what does it look like? Well, it simply means to be right with God. You're right with God. It is used 60 times in this book alone, which would then make it a major theme in the book of Romans. We have already discussed man's righteousness. We've seen what man's righteousness produces. And have you really thought about what it does produce? what man's efforts look like not only to us but what does God think of man's efforts you ever thought about that because there's a lot of people out there that think oh look at how God must look at my efforts like the Pharisee praying God look at me look at what I do I pray I fast I do all these things I must be righteous with you and before you look at me Lord do you know what how God views our righteousness Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. That's how he views our righteousness. Filthy rags referring to, and I don't mean to be crude here, but the menstrual cycle. Menstrual rags, they're worthless. That's what he was saying. That's how God views our human righteousness. Now, how's that? You know, what kind of picture is that? How does that make you feel about how you feel about earning your way into heaven? And to say it in another way, man's best efforts on his best day, God says, are worthless. They're worthless. Wow. So if it means to be right with God, righteousness means to be right with God, and I can't do it, then whose righteousness is it? And how do I obtain it? Well, what do we know about God's righteousness we know it's different than man's we know that the author is different we know that the attributes are different and we know that the duration is different see ours only last a short time if anything and we know how God views them so what kind of righteousness do I want I want his righteousness see the author is different than man it's God Isaiah 45, 8 says, Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have what? Created it. God is the author. It is given by Him because ours is lacking. That's the author. And the attributes are different if the author is different the attributes are going to be different aren't they it would make sense see the attributes are different because it's sinless perfection a righteousness that fulfills the pe- the penalty of sin it was only fulfilled through who Jesus Christ because he did not deviate from anything he was sinless perfection He endured every temptation man could experience, yet he was without sin. Perfect. That's what the Bible tells us. And he fulfilled the penalty that was due to us, that we might be made, what? Righteous in him. His righteousness imputed to us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become righteousness of God in him 1 Peter 2:24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness Its author is different so its attributes are different It's his righteousness Imputed to us, not our, not our righteousness trying to make us justified. His righteousness makes us justified. Its author is different, its attributes are different, and guess what? Its duration is different. Oh, good news, but now. Psalm 119, 142 says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. And Isaiah 51.8 says, My righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Even in Daniel chapter 9, he talks about an everlasting righteousness. And this is what we have here. The Apostle Paul has shown God as a righteous judge. Remember that? And now he shows our God, our God of love, reaching out to mankind to save us. And it's a deep contrast going from dark to light. We were trying to do it. We can't do it. But now, but now, but now what? God's righteousness is given. And what did we just learn? That he's the author of it. It's given as a gift through Jesus Christ in his sinless perfection. And guess what? It lasts how long? Forever. For Forever forever. Once we receive this, get this locked down in your brain. It lasts forever. God's immutable. He's unchanging. His righteousness is unchanging. You can't change it. You cannot change it. We must lock that down to live in this victorious life. So beautiful what he's saying here. We continue to say this that it's good news. This is good news. Walk in assurance of it. It's great news. It's the best news ever. This is why he's not ashamed of it. How often do we hear about this news? Now that we know what it is, how can we obtain it? How do we receive it? Like Job said, how can anyone be right with God how do i receive this free gift of salvation this god-given heaven perfected everlasting righteousness of god how do i get it well it's apart from law it's revealed through scripture and it's received how by faith it's received by faith paul lays it out for us but now verse 21 the righteousness of god apart from the laws revealed Be witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all. Now, a quick thought for you. Luke, the writer of the book of Luke, the writer of Acts, he's one of the most notably acclaimed Greek writers ever, the only Greek writer of, of any book in the Bible. What a privilege. A Greek writer now the apostle paul though being a jew he's writing a masterpiece here it's like a it's been tragedy that was very prevalent back then with greek writers they wrote these tragedies and they would write in a way called deus ex machina style a plot device whereby an unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely Occurrence. This is how they used to write. F.F. Bruce, one of the premier scholars on the Apostle Paul's life, pointed this out. And he references the Roman po- poet Horace. He's laying down some guidelines of writers of these tragedies. And they would write so dramatically. And he criticizes those who resort too readily to the device of bringing in a God to solve the story, to solve the plot. And he says this, do not bring a God onto the stage, he says, unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. So Paul here picks up these words and he applies them to the forgiveness of sins. And he says, this is the only way. In essence, he's saying, here's a problem which needs God to solve it. And he's writing this great tragedy with great hope that knight in shining armor coming in on a white horse now how does God solve this problem it is apart from law witnessed by the law and the prophets and obtained through faith in Jesus Christ it is apart from law witnessed by the law and the prophets and obtained through faith in Jesus Christ let's look at each one individually apart from the law But now he says this righteousness, this perfection that's given to us, it's apart from the law. Apart from the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Does it get any plainer than that? Plain and simple. But if you need more proof, Philippians 1, 9 not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 2 Timothy one nine, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before time began, it was already going to be solved before time began. It wasn't just Adam sinned and i got to come up with something new. No, it was already pre-planned. God already knew what he was going to do. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy spirit now william newell says he wrote this now the great and most common error in setting forth god's righteousness here is to allow at least some place of our own works that is our that is the greatest most common error is to allow any place for our own works the apostle paul is saying there's no place for that we can't even allow a little hint of it. We can't. It's a false security. We can't do it. Man cannot seem to get over this constant bombardment of law keeping, of law doing. I must be able to do something. What can I do? It's like when you are invited somewhere and you say, hey, can I, what can I bring? And they say, nothing. I've got it all covered. No, 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 no. i got to bring something. i got to do it. That's just who I am. That's just how I do it. And we try to do that with God. God, you're going to give me righteousness, and I get eternity in heaven. What can I bring? What can I do? How can I get there? No, he says, nothing. Nothing. It's my righteousness given to you. Now just abide in me. Follow me. That's what he says. Galatians 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Are under the curse. You want to live by the law? You're under the curse. Romans 4.15 says, The law brings about what? Wrath. That is all the law does. Brings about wrath. Write that somewhere in your Bible. All law does is bring wrath. If you want to follow a law, a set of principles, a set of rituals that makes you feel holy, all it does is bring a curse. All it does is judges you. Why? Because you can't keep it. You can't keep it perfect. This is why anger builds up in us against other religions teaching some type of uh, uh, of work or ritual, because anyone teaching that is damning other people to hell. Does that not make you angry? when we think about those religions who do that. All the law can do is condemn. Why? Again, nobody can live up to it. Why do you think people have to continue to go to confession every week? Can't live up to it. You're sinful. But Christ comes in, but now. All the law was meant to do was to show that they couldn't keep it at all. So that they would come to this place and cry out to God for salvation, for mercy, for grace. That's what its intent was. Their so-called obedience was legal compliance. It was mechanical. Not done from the heart because God is Lord. It was to avoid punishment to try to earn approval. It's like driving in a, say, school zone. I don't know what the speed limit is now. Maybe 25. Is it 25 or is it 35? 25. See? Do we drive that speed because we're so concerned about the kids? <laughs> because we're so cautious. We're so aware of the safety of others. Because we're good people and follow all the laws and respect the officers? No. No. We drive that speed because the cop down the street is going to pull us over and give us a ticket. That's mechanical. That is legal compliance or legal obedience, and it is mechanical. And we attribute that, and we take, we carry it over into religion. And we think to avoid punishment, I must do these things. No, it's not that way with the Lord. See, legal compliance, legal obedience, mechanical, it was not done as activity of faith from the heart but legal activity of damnation. And how do we know this? Romans 14, 23. For whatever is not from faith is what? Sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever. The rituals and sacrifices were only a foreshadowing of things to come. All the burnt offerings, all the peace offerings, all the sacrifices were called a foreshadowing and they were to be obeyed as a result of their faith in what the scriptures declared i'm doing this because i know god is faithful i know what he's bringing i know what's coming and these things represent that that's what they were for in other words they did them because of what they re- represented that's what they were supposed to do and they represented the lord's salvation. How else could Moses, as the Bible tell us, look to the reward? He looked to the reward. That was activity of faith. Or else it was pure hypocrisy. So it's apart from the law. It's apart from the law. It's witnessed also by what? The law and the prophets Why is this important? Because this is no new revelation that Paul is teaching here. Paul, you're bringing something new. We can't hear this. We can't listen to this. You're bringing something new. And he's saying, no, I'm not. It was foretold. All the scriptures that they had, that they took pride in, remember, that they said, we have the law, law, Paul. You can't tell us anything. They didn't even read them. They didn't even understand them. They lost them at times in their history. All the scriptures they had foretold of his righteousness to come through Christ. This was the plan all the way from the beginning since Adam sinned. And it was outlined by the law in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, where it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Messiah. Genesis 17, also in the Pentateuch. Abraham's offering of Isaac, a suggestion of Jesus Christ. Exodus, Leviticus, describing all of the ceremonial laws. All a foreshadowing of Christ to come, Messiah. Messiah. Then you have the prophets. That was the law. Now you have the prophets. Many messianic psalms, like Psalm 22. You have the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7. You have more in Isaiah 9 and 11. You have one of the greatest chapters in Daniel chapter 9 that give us the exact time of his coming, Messiah. We go through it every year during Advent. We talk about all these scriptures So all these foreshadowing things to come, but now, these words, but now, it is here. It's revealed, he's saying, through the law and the prophets. But now it's here. Righteousness revealed and given to us through Jesus Christ. How else do you explain Simeon, that good old guy Simeon who was waiting in the temple, The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, was upon him and led him there, and he recognizes Jesus. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet, but Simeon recognizes Messiah. How? Because he knows God's word, and he believed it, and it was accounted to him as righteousness because the Bible says he was devout. He's probably remembering Genesis 3.15 and the law, and he proclaims this to Mary. Look what he tells Mary in Luke 2.34 and 35. Mary, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword, he tells her, will pierce through your own soul also, telling her what? That your son is going to die for the sins of the world. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, he says. Revealed through the law and the prophets, not a new revelation. He's confirming what the Bible was saying. We go through these scriptures, like I said, every year during Advent to remember what? God's love. And what is God's love? That he came to us to make the way for us, to draw us. In the Iliad of Homer, the great... Trojan warrior Hector was preparing to fight Achilles and the invading Greeks. And as he was about to leave home, Hector wanted to hold his young son in his arms and say goodbye to him, what would end up being his last time to see him. But Hector's armor frightened the child, and the child shrank back into his nurse's care. And the father, laughing out loud, then removed his bronze helmet took up his child in his arms and the little boy discovered that the father of his loves was behind all that armor. And that's what Paul is doing. Behind all that armor is a loving God who came down to us and gave us and imparted his righteousness. So this righteousness is apart from law, revealed through the scripture and now what? Obtained through faith. This is nothing new, he's telling them faith is how you were made right with God even in the Old Testament this is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter chapter 11 or he even wrote chapter 11 that hall of faith this is what we look at in depth in chapters 4 and 5 of this book what we will go through As Galatians 3.6 says, before Jesus even came on the scene, before he dies on the cross, it tells us Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness because he had faith. It is true faith in Jesus alone, apart from anything else, evidenced how? By continual obedience. Continual obedience. Continuing to walk with him. John 8:31. Then Jesus said to these Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is true faith. True faith submits totally to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not just my Savior, you are my Lord. And Jesus said, If you love me, you will do what? You will obey me. These are the evidences. It's not let me do these things so I can show that I'm a Christian. No, let me do these things because I am a Christian. Because I, I Lord, you're my Savior and you're my Lord, and I want to serve you and I want to follow you. We don't always do them perfectly, but it's that desire that's true faith. There is faith. It tells us what it looks like. James 2:17 says thus also faith by itself if it does not have good works is what is dead is there any evidence in your life Jesus in John 6 was teaching in the synagogue among many of so-called disciples and he was saying some very very hard things to understand and to believe and in John chapter 6 verse 66 says It tells us, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him. How long? No more. A false faith here. It's a false faith that never took root and does not abide in Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. Those are the differences. John 6, 67 and 69, it it goes on. It's true faith. One that sticks with Christ when the chips are down. How do we know this? Because then it tells us, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, was Peter perfect after that? No, but he believed. It's accounted to him for righteousness. He is saved. He is saved. In Hosea 6.3, it tells us, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said about these words in Hosea 6.3. 6, Listen to this. He writes, Not all at once, but by degrees shall we attain to holy knowledge. And our business is to persevere and learn little and little. We need not despair. Through our progress may be slow, for we shall yet know. The Lord who has become our teacher will not give us up, however slow of understanding we may be. For it is not for His honor that any degree of human folly should baffle His skill. The Lord delights to make the simple Wise. Our duty is to keep to our main topic and follow on to know not this peculiar doctrine nor that, but Jehovah Himself. To know the Father, to know the Son, to know the Spirit, the Triune God. This is life eternal. Let us keep to this, for in this way we shall gain complete instruction. By following on to know the Lord, We learn healing after being torn, binding up after smiting, and life after death. Experience has its perfect work when the heart follows the trackway of the Almighty Lord. My soul, keep thou close to Jesus. Follow on to the knowledge of Christ, which is the most excellent of all the sciences. The Holy Ghost will lead thee unto all truth. Is not this His gracious office? Rely upon Him to fulfill it. End quote. Great words. It is an exercise of the will, faith is, into submission to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith believes. It is the hand that reaches out and receives God's righteousness. That's what faith is. So then we have a righteousness whose author is God, given how? In sinless perfection, through who? Jesus Christ. That lasts how long? Forever. It is apart from any good work that anyone could ever do. It's revealed how? Through God's word, both Old and New Testaments. And it is obtained through faith. True faith that endures evidence by continual abiding or obedience to Christ. I don't remember where I picked up this story. But I think that makes it more precious to me. Talks about a poor man who had spent a life of ignorance and sin. He's found in London by a pastor, apparently dying in a miserable way. He's in great anxiety of mind from an apparently accidental cause. A stray leaf torn from a testament captures his eye. It was part of this chapter here. He had read the vivid description of a sinner, had applied it to his own case, his own situation. And then he says, but where's the remedy? Where's the gospel? See, it was torn. And alas, he says, the paper ended. It said, but now the righteousness of God without the law is, and he says, is what? And he's anxious. He says, do the next words give any hope for such a sinner? As I am. And then the remainder of the chapter was read and explained to him, and the good news was as cold water to his thirsty soul. What a great picture. That's what these words are. But now, a contrast. For any born again Christian, these two words should be exciting. And it should be something that we hold on dearly, something that we underline, something that we highlight. But now, Words that we treasure and we repeat to ourselves over and over, very often. Why? Because we often do not live in the victory that we have. We don't live in it. We don't live in the righteousness that has been given to us that lasts forever. Lock it down, tight. The person who walks in faith in the righteousness of Christ no longer says, Man, there is terrible blackness within me, and I find sin within myself still. How can I say that I'm saved? How? But now. A thought came across your mind one day. It takes you back to a feeling that you have. It takes you back to a memory that you have. It takes you back to a sin that you committed. It takes you back to sin in your life. You couldn't believe you even did those things. You begin to think. How did I get there? How was I that person? How could I have ever done that? Man, if all these people knew what I have done, boy, how would they stare at me? They would tell me to get out of this church. They would tell me, you shouldn't be teaching. Do we think that way sometimes? I am unworthy. Yeah, we all are. I'm unworthy. I'm no good. These are the things we think. See, this is the person who's still looking at who? Themself. And I've gone through it. I still look at myself. I'm unworthy. But you know what that does? It gives Satan this foothold in our lives. Remember those old westerns? They tie up a cowboy by the feet and they drag him all over up and down the street. That's what Satan does to us when we begin to think this way. I find sin still in my life. How can I ever be saved? How could the Lord justify me? How can his righteousness be imputed to me? It can. We can't let Satan drag us back and forth. So how do we get out of this? We remember, but now. But now. Oh yeah, I used to be that guy. But now. It's a contrast. But now. Men who have erred and who take a serious thought of their sin, writes A.B. Bruce, are apt to consume their hearts and waste their time in bitter reflections on their past misconduct. Christ gives them more profitable work to do. He says, when thou art converted, he said, strengthen thy brethren. Cease from idle regrets over the irrevocable past. There's nothing you can do. Devote yourself Wholeheartedly to the sole labors of love, and let help from God be given to you, that from thy very faults and follies thou mayest learn the meekness, patience, compassion, and wisdom necessary for carrying on such labors with success. End quote. But now. William Tid Matson wrote many hymns, in one particular He fits this but now here. And it goes like this. Lord, I was blind. I could not see. In thy marred visage any grace. But now the beauty of thy face in radiant vision dawns on me. Lord, I was deaf. I could not hear the thrilling music of thy voice. But now I hear thee and rejoice. And all thine uttered words are dear. Lord, I was dumb. I could not speak the grace and glory of thy name. But now, as touched with living flame, my lips thine eager praises wake. Lord, I was dead. I could not stir my lifeless soul to come to thee. But now, since thou hast quickened me, I rise from sin's dark sepulcher. That was then, but in Christ it's but now. That was then, this is now. Hey, those sins you did, when you're in Christ, that was then. But now, see, when Satan begins to lie to you, to talk to you, to speak to you that you're unworthy and no good, you all you have to do is say, yeah, that was me. But now, that's it. How beautiful is that? The words, but now, brings in the contrast from dark to light and sets it in when now. I was that person, but now. But now what? But now I'm restored. By faith I have received God's righteousness through Jesus who is sinless perfection. It's given to me freely and forever. Why? Because God's word says so. Because God's word says so. That's why. And whose spirit bears witness uh, with our spirit that we're a child of God, that we're a child of God? His spirit. Don't believe the lie. Don't let Satan drag you around. But now, let's leave with those words. Father, we come before you. Lord, what blessed words these are, Father. What hope. And it's forever, your righteousness that you impart to us through your sinless, perfect Son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful, we're so thankful. This is why the Apostle Paul was not ashamed that he wanted to share it. May it grab hold of our hearts and our souls, the very fiber of our being, Lord. And may we want to continue to share it in those of us who have never accepted. Now we know how. Now we know what it means. Lord, may we walk in victory today in assurance and in joy. We thank you so much, Father, for all that you have done and do for us. And Lord, in a world that's so dark and Black and we're going through droughts, Lord, possibly no power, fires everywhere in our area, Father, rain and flooding across the United States, Lord, even in other countries. I mean, it seems so bleak. Where's the hope? That's all we hear about on the news. But Lord, thank you for days like this where we can come in and hear about the good news. Then we can walk in victory and share that hope that is within us with other people. So Lord, we praise and thank you for this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.